Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to watch the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your co-hosts, Carlos Cooper, with me as always. Joe Hillier and Dave Gurney. And I'm just going to get straight into it and crack a beer open. Uh, oh, I'm kind of jealous. What, what a master stroke you have. There. Like, that, that's <laughs> the perfect beer right there now. Will- there will be uh you'll probably notice that we all kind of sound a little a little different uh, it's because we're doing this via zoom last week of interruptions to your regularly scheduled uh programming uh but 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 nevertheless i'm going to open this beer and the reason that i mentioned the zoom bit is because we're all going to be drinking different things and so i was at the grocery store earlier and i picked this up and i'll tell you why Mainly because one of the films we're going to be talking about is something that kind of goes back to my younger years, to the genesis of who I am as a person. Mm. And we've talked about um, our craft beer journeys before. And this beer was one of my early forays into (laughs) beer drinking outside of just like your regular like domestics or lagers or whatever. And that is Guinness uh, Draft Stout. This is the... 14.9 ounce can that has the nitrogen ball that drops whenever you crack it open and then you just flip it completely over on top of itself and let it fill your pint glass and then you just see that that beautiful cascading oh it's pretty reaches the perfect head um so i'm going guinness joe what are you doing uh we did do claw brewing not too long ago it was our first time episode 184 when you brought that give a crap uh, beer, Carlos, yeah, yeah, that, that was a good one. benefited colorectal cancer research. I'm returning back to Duclaw with a chocolate peanut butter porter called Sweet Baby Jesus. An ad for this episode. Yeah, which uh, is what I'll try to scream when I'm pulling off like a 740 or something <laughs> like that <laughs> at the top of my lungs. Um, we had that peanut butter stout, David, uh, in Carlos's absence last week. So I'm going to follow it up with the, uh, Porter version of the same kind of beer. Way way to bring some consistency to the podcast, Joe. I love it. Uh, you know, being at home here, I'm, I'm going with an easy drinking, uh, situation, something that I know isn't going to put me under because I'm drinking a whole can myself. And, And this is from real ale. It is Vamanos Let's Gosa. Can't see it. Um, a tart, refreshing beer with lime and salt. I'm excited to drink it. I think it'll be refreshing. Yeah, yeah. I'll pick it. up that. I'll pick up that real El Gosa in the summertime for sure. I know Gosa is one of your favorite styles, David. You like it a lot. It's a good summer summer beer, and already here, it's feeling like summer. No, that's the truth. It sure is. Yeah. What movie are we talking about, though? Well, a, a film that strangely enough makes me think of summer too. Skateboarding always makes me think of summer for, for whatever reason. I guess that's when my friends started getting into it was one summer. Anyhow, uh, we're talking about the Tony Hawk documentary. Tony Hawk, Until the Wheels Fall Off? Until the Wheels right. Fall Off, yeah. Yeah. Um, just released 2022. It is on HBO Max. Um, you have Tony Hawk and all of the sort of expected suspects surrounding him all the luminaries of the skate scene in the 80s into the 90s 
of course, also, um, you know, various figures from his family life and, and others on camera. It's directed by Sam Jones, who is primarily a, uh, well, started as a photographer, but has done some documentary films. In fact, did one about Wilco back in the early 2000s that I remember. I have a copy of on DVD. Hadn't seen his name on a film in a little while, though, even though he's continued making things. I'm ex I was excited to see his name pop up on this. Okay, what's he doing? Checking in. Um, as you would expect, this is a rough biographical, not rough, but a basically a, a biographical documentary of Tony Hawk with like, as I said, getting commentary from all these people surrounding him, including the man himself, um, discussing his life, his, his accomplishments, what drives him, what motivates him and where he stands today. You know, these kinds of documentaries uh, I will enjoy if I've got a slight interest in the subject, you know, the subject of the documentary. And I, I do hear, I, I never was a skater. I, I didn't, I don't know, I think my folks dissuaded me from doing it because they felt it was dangerous and that I didn't pick it up when I was an older person or as I got older. But um, Dogtown and Z-Boys is a documentary that, I mean, I really, really like that one movie. And I try to watch it every few years. I like the style, uh, Sean Penn's narration, that birth of modern skateboard culture. And you kind of see where Tony Hawk's place in that world was through the uh, early, not early, but a, a replacement in the Bones, Brigade, uh, Bones Brigade that was Stacy Peralta's brainchild of bringing videos to the uh, to kids around the country at the birth of the VHS. Those were some very, very, very popular videos. And you kind of can see that we're looking at as the movie rolls on. Well, the first scene of the film, I mean, it's striking. It's just him as a 50, what, two year old guy when it was when it was shot around that age. Yeah. trying to nail that 740, 700 degree spin in the air that he had yeah. that he had conquered, of course, as a much younger person and just failing and failing and falling and falling. And that becomes kind of the theme of, of, of the movie. He falls over and over professionally, personally, but he keeps getting up for that love of skating. And you, you the, the idea that you're seeing a Michael Jordan figure, the best in the game, Someone, if you're not even into skating, everyone knows his name. I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Yeah, it is. Um, he is definitely the Michael Jordan of skateboarding. I think that that's an apt uh, comparison. But wouldn't you say in a sport that is not nearly as highly regarded as basketball? So it, not that he suffered. He's eventually found success, but it took him a lot longer to get there financially and like in terms of business stability than a Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, Michael Jordan entered a league that was financially viable already, and there was a clear structure of how you made money and that you were going to make a lot of money if you were one of the top, you know, 20 talents in the league. But I was speaking more from like a skill level, like a virtuoso level of like a level of somebody that came in and like changed everything. And I mean... There is there is a biography that was published, I think, in like 2004. Um, I think it was an autobiography, actually. Uh, yeah, it was him and that guy, Sean Mortimer, that, that wrote it together, who's featured a lot in this. Um, 
2002. So that was the first biography of anybody that I ever read. And I read it like multiple times cover to cover and was like obsessed with the idea that uh, this guy who wasn't as good as everybody else found a way to circumvent the status quo to get up to everybody else's level, eventually vastly surpassing everybody, you know, with like this idea that you can ollie into your heirs, you know, like that was a huge deal. Um, and as somebody who was also very small and weak as a child, especially compared to my peers, I, that really like resonated with me. And so I've always, I've always loved Tony Hawk. I mean, I grew up on the video games. I grew up on the skate videos and I mean, this is a really good documentary. I was as as it was going and as they were kind of covering those early years uh, where, you know, they're talking about his kind of pitfalls, you know, career wise and like not getting the respect from people and like things were, that were in more in regard to his professional life. I was wondering as as the film was going on, I was like, I was like, are they going to softball his personal life? Because the guy's been married four times, you know, like that's that's something that's something that for a, for like the first hour, maybe even more of the movie, they didn't like touch on at all. And I was glad they finally did get there a little bit and that you did you know, I don't, I don't need the guy to like trauma dump on us. Cause like, I also don't find that particularly interesting and like, it's somewhat exploitative, but as someone who's followed him for so long, you know, there, ha there always has been that kind of like wall up about his personal life that, you know, he's, he, he's never been somebody that's been like super transparent about those things. And so I was like, okay, are we going to get that in this documentary a little bit more? Cause I would be interested in that. And I'm glad we did a little bit, um, you know, it's not for me to say that he should have gone into more detail or whatever. I mean, I think he went into plenty of detail. Um, I would have liked to have seen more from Riley, who is in his own right, a very successful professional skateboarder to the mm. point where Tony Hawk had a signature board that said Riley's dad uh, on it like a couple of years ago, because, you know, Riley's a pretty, you know, again, a pretty big deal in his own right as a professional skateboarder. Um, but you know, it's nice that he was in there a little bit at least. And, um, you know, I have such a fondness for almost everybody that speaks in this documentary, like having watched them growing up, like watching like absolutely iconic, like doubles routines from Andy Mack and Tony Hawk, like all of Bucky Lassick's like birdhouse boards when I was growing up were like always so funny. Like he was kind of the one with the sense of humor and his designs. And I remember those so vividly. And like being a big fan of the Bones Brigade and those videos and like all those guys like Lance Mountain with the humor, Steve, Steve Caballero and Tommy Guerrero, who doesn't get his his due in this documentary as much. He's like the least feature of the Bones Brigade. Um, but, you know, growing up in South, Te South Texas, like two of the six guys in this are are Chicano and that's like really cool to see. Um, and then of course, like Tony and everybody. So it was like really cool to see all of that, even if it was filtered through Tony Hawk's perspective, but it's just like, every time somebody pops up, you're just like, fuck yeah. Like of all of the bones brigade of any skateboarder ever, Rodney Mullen is probably like my all time, like idol. He was the guy that I was, I was so scared of getting hurt because my parents made me afraid of everything that like vert skateboarding, even if I had access to like a vert ramp, which I never did was something that was like totally off the table as a kid. And so Rodney Mullen, the kooky guy who 
literally just rides on flat ground for the most part and like does crazy shit was like, Oh, I could, I'm not afraid. Like the injuries I'll sustain doing that. Don't scare me. I can learn to do these things. And so like all of that combined with the fucking kick-ass soundtrack that this documentary has just make it like an enjoyable experience. Literally 10 minutes ago, I just finished watching it for the second time. Uh, cause the first time I watched it was before we said we were doing it on the podcast. And so I just watched it like as a fanboy, um, like mid like COVID fever shakes. And so, you know, could have, uh, I wasn't processing it in the kind of analytical way that I would for something I watched for the show. So I was like, fuck it, I'll run it back and I'll watch it. And I like literally just finished it right before we hopped on the zoom call. And it's so good the second time, even when, you know, everything's going to happen, it's just like so fun to watch for me as you know. A little skate shit growing up <laughs> i yeah i i i <laughs> i agree uh, i i mean uh not that i am a skater in the way that you are but i grew up was not anymore skate adjacent you know i had friends who were skaters i was into punk so naturally that brings a skating crowd in and there definitely was in the early 90s when i was doing that that was during that like second boom of skateboarding getting towards the x games i guess it was just petering out i guess maybe it was going into the dead period actually now that i think about it um but still i was aware of it i think this doc has a lot going for it though even if you're not a skate fan one is something that joe pointed out before skating documentaries when they're done well are really good because there's lots of great footage of skating you skateboarding has always attracted these kind of people spike jones um you know lance bangs these other people who like to photograph and video and and shoot what's being done um and that's a part of the story here is that obviously tony hawk was in the, the first wave of that with with the bones brigade brigade that they were being very successful with their video series. I mean, that was something that kind of helped keep them afloat uh, in, in that early era. And so it's exciting to get to see that kind of footage. I think on, on, this, on the basis of that alone, it's worth seeing. With the soundtrack, again, another thing that I associate with skate videos. So this, this has the strengths of skate videos for what they are, which are kind of an art form under themselves that I feel like at some point, it would behoove us maybe to go back and watch a couple of classic skate videos and do reviews of those. Just I have, to a, employ. I have a lot to say about that. We, a lot to say about it being a worthwhile enterprise. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So it, it's it's interesting. It's like a blend between music video and sports photography, and uh, there's all this kind of wacky creative expression stuff. I mean, Spike Jones, look, he came out of that. That's so, yeah. um, the, But anyway, has some of that strength. Tony Hawk, I do find to be a generally compelling guy. He's always seemed like he he's thoughtful, even if he's made some bad choices in his life, personal life wise, you know, I guess what you were nodding to Carlos, I, I agree. I think that that was probably handled about as much as I wanted it to be. I mean, I suppose it, it, it would have been interesting for him to have been a little bit more upfront about maybe some of his particular sins, but then do I really need him to confess all that shit? I don't know. I mean, 
you know, he wasn't Ike Turner or anything. You know what I mean? Like, not from what I've heard. I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, he, I mean, he wasn't known as an abuser. I don't think in that no, sense, no, it's not no, a physical no. abuser. And, yeah, and the, no. the movie does not shy away from absentee parentism. Well, he cops to that. He cops yeah. to the damage he did, or the or the disservice that he did to his children. He does. Yeah, and I, and and he cops to it with his spouses to a certain degree. I mean. He talks about having to check in somewhere at some point. Yeah. Um, you know, get some assistance in straightening his life out as like an adult, you know, when you're in your early to mid thirties and, you know, you still are struggling to be able to figure out how to have healthy relationships with other human beings. Like <clears throat> at a certain point, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe I need someone to step in and kind of, put me on track which you know he talks about but yeah i i don't i don't know that the film would have benefited from us get, giving like an itemized kind of receipt of all of his like past transgressions i think the fact that they and and also i'm, I'm not i'm not interested in a hit piece like cancellation attempt or whatever you know or anything like that yeah um, nor, nor would he have been involved in anything like that well, of course not. And which, right. you know, and his brother wouldn't have been all his best friends wouldn't have been. I mean, guys, he's been best friends with for 40 years, but even still just acknowledging that as like a concept is, you know, I, I don't, and unless there's something that changes the way I look at him forever, which I guess, I don't know. Uh, either way, but, I don't, I don't think it's important. I think that, um, I, I, I think that the film does a really good job of, giving us like an overview of his life, his impact on skateboarding, his like, you know, tenacity and insane drive to like accomplish things and like how that manifests itself the same way it did for Michael Jordan. Like Michael Jordan refused to lose. And so he punched Steve Kerr well, in the face, you know, like it, people do crazy things when they're that driven. And I think what's so amazing about him in particular, in this sport in particular, I, and I guess there are some other sports that you could maybe compare it to more like, like football or whatever, is like he's doing it despite the physical toll it takes and almost because of it, it seems like, you know, I think part of the argument the film makes is that he seems almost compelled to just keep beating himself up until he achieves even more. He, he's, he's just kind of driven to keep pushing ahead in his in the sport. And it's funny because it is this sport that's defined by the creation of tricks, right? Like the more tricks you create and the more the, the more of a name you make for yourself, the more like you're, you're actually like a creator, I guess other sports have it like people who are playmakers of a sort or have a certain kind of defense they run or whatever. But what do they say in the film? Hawk is credited with like a thousand tricks at this point in his career. Yeah, I mean, he's created so. I mean, I mean, first of all, like he could have just like been the first person to ollie into an air, and that's like enough of a contribution to skateboarding. That already is like such a massive game changing moment, and like pivot in how people do things and unlocked such a huge like potential for what could be done in the air on a skateboard. Like, and like end it there, and it's like he's one of the most important bird skateboarders right. of all time. But yeah, he's invented so so many tricks i mean like finger flips air walks madonna's like uh i mean so many things and i mean the only other person to even like 
come close to that is is Rodney Mullen, who also invented like a hundred and something tricks. And yeah. like I I would he say is a funny guy. I think of the of the interviewees who I got to know better through this, because I'd probably seen Rodney Mullen footage maybe back in the day, but him on camera, he is so intense. He's very and, intense. And you know, very like locked into some kind of spiritual trip that I, I appreciate and I'm not quite there with him, but it's amazing to see somebody so like focused and intense about what he's saying and it, it, so he's great the other guy who's really compelling for another set of reasons is the Dwayne Peters guy right yeah yeah who has sure. just obviously been through the fucking ringer in his life yeah. and such an attitude still he's he's really kind of it's both funny and sad and <laughs> when you're watching him it's and he lost his son. I mean, at an incredibly young age, that's horrifying. Yeah. 20. I said oh. that when he was 20. Yeah. He's, he's a troubling figure. I mean, some of the things he says are kind of funny sometimes. Cause you're just like, damn, you're still digging in, you know, or like, <laughs> and you know, he's just kind of like a goofy old punk guy. Yeah. Some of it, but then sometimes it's like pretty fucking dark and it's like, you know, but I, I'm glad you mentioned Rodney Mullen because before I saw this, everybody was talking about how he steals the show and like how he's like one of the probably like the most compelling character in the documentary and all this stuff like that, which is true, I think. But also in 2012, there was a, uh, uh, a bones brigade documentary that came out that was like specifically about like coming out of Dogtown and Z boys, Powell Peralta skateboards, the bones brigade from like late seventies through like the late eighties when they broke up. And that was the first time I ever saw Rodney Mullen, the person, which oh. I guess, I guess in the, in the film, he would argue that if you've seen him skateboard, you've seen Rodney Mullen, the person, but like mm. Rodney Mullen, the person like speaking and like his mannerisms mm. and stuff like that. And he's even more intense in that documentary because yeah, he gets more oh. screen time, but he's, yeah, he's very mystical. Now, I don't know if you listened to Mark Maron's interview with Tony Hawk. I'm almost done with it. Yeah. Tony Hawk mentions that. And and I knew this about him, but I didn't realize how private he was about it, but that Rodney Mullen like only skateboards from like midnight to 4 a.m. now. Uh, and like is literally so by himself in parking lots. Like ev he's just every day he skates for, like three or four hours in the middle of the night just to do it. Like nobody sees him do it. He's not releasing video parts anymore. Um, actually, you know, I, I think one thing that we should do on social media is I'll send you guys some of the best like video parts from some of these Bones Brigade guys or some of my favorites and we'll post them because there's specifically one of Rodney Mullen that's incredible. That was from like 2002 or so. Um, that's, but, a, that's, a, that's a great idea. You know, this documentary didn't break any new ground. I mean, it, you're not going to look at this. David, I don't think you're going to teach this documentary in class. But it, and maybe I'm wrong, but what it does then is just make sure that the subject matter is compelling enough to sustain the running time. And luckily for us, Tony Hawk has life events and evolution of skating events through his life that do that. Um, I mentioned the 740 as a joke when I'm drinking my sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> the idea that we are seeing and these kids at the time are creating what now we know to be the laws of skateboarding. You know, it, in Dogtown and Z-Boys, not to go back there too much, but it captures the idea of, hey, an empty swimming pool, what could we do? And then that evolves into ramp building and skate park building. And so now that we've got the tools and now that there are professional competitions, 
what do I do to win? Well, I need to perfect a new trick. And then everyone copies that trick. And that becomes the standard, the baseline of what you need to be able to do just to compete. Well, then I better do a even more rotation. Let me get that 740. Oh my God, Tom, Tony Hawk lands a 740. Where do you go from there? You go to the 900. Can it be done? The 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 business getting bigger and bigger and bigger when you see the arena show tour that they put on with pyrotechnics and <laughs> motocross bikes and i mean it just it, there's this rising action of the industry which i found compelling and fascinating and certainly kept me riveted uh, you're absolutely right i mean it, i think I think what you're saying is correct, Joe, that this isn't groundbreaking approach to documentary filmmaking, but it's really well done. It, as I said before, benefits from the built-in, interesting cinematographic decisions made by those people shooting skateboarding throughout the years. So there's plenty of that. Jones himself shoots some great footage. I mean, that opening sequence that you talk about, Joe, where you get this prolonged uh, experience of Hawk attempting the 900 over and over and over again and failing and failing and failing, but shot at really great angles with these nice kind of interesting perspectives on it. It's, it's all very visually compelling as much as it's just done in a fairly predictable biographical kind of format where you're moving through these phases of his life, but he just accomplished so much. You'd, as it is, I come away feeling like they probably had to trim a lot of really interesting, important events from full coverage for the running time because it's, it's what two hours 15 minutes something like that yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's sailed and never it never dragged it's, sailed, I mean, but it's, it's funny because it comes up if you search it as listed as a tv series google thinks of it as a tv series right i mean it was originally re released on hbo i get it but it's feature film length and it's presented that way it's not multiple episodes but you could imagine them having taken this and broken it into four or five hour-long episodes. I would have loved a six-part series. Chronicling his life. There probably will be an extended version at some point it, because skateboarding does inspire this kind of love of the footage. I mean, we're, we're talking about Hawk here. He's going to have another film dropping in just a few weeks, and that's Jackass 4.5, <laughs> um, which is kind of a similar concept. I mean, in terms of, I mean, Jackass grew out of skateboarding, right? Grew out of Bam Margera and the and what was going on already in that community. Guerrilla filmmaking style. Yeah. Yeah, Big Brother um, magazine. There you go. So it's it's kind of cool that you know you think about it, and there really there's a good opportunity. Maybe there will be an until the wheels fall off point five. You know what we'll get here in a few months. Yeah, that would that would definitely be interesting. I I have a few more, a few more. I have three criticisms. And All one, right. and let's one, hear them. Uh, one just like commentary. <clears throat> the footage with his mom at the beginning is 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 very sweet, and like especially given the fact that she has since passed, is like nice to have in there. But it's it never really it doesn't come up that much again. Most of the stuff where you talk about his family is with his dad, and it felt a little superfluous. And as far as like talking about the you know, over two hour runtime. You could have taken that. Yeah. Okay. Did you need it? I don't know. Up, upon first watch, I didn't think much about it. But then when I watched it the second time, having seen the whole thing and knowing that it doesn't really come back up again all that much, I was like, Hmm, that's an interesting choice. Um, 
again, certainly not mad about it. It's just, it's a very sweet moment, uh, you know, uh, between them. Um, and I guess they go straight into talking about like her being a bit older when she had, mm-hmm. him, you know, but anyhow, uh, that opening sequence right before he goes to see his mom at the assisted living home when he's attempting that 900 over and over and over again at 52. It's, it's a great scene, but because I know the context of it outside of the documentary, the documentary does it a bit of a disservice because Tony Hawk went on like a farewell tour basically. And by tour, I mean just him in his house uh, or wherever that is that ramp uh but he did the 900 is like a year or two ago for the last time mm-hmm. and that's where that footage comes from is him landing it for the last time and then he landed it there's like a thing up on his instagram about it you can watch uh and he's he's done with it now and he did that for the ollie 540 not not to be confused with the mctwist they kind of differentiate a little bit in the documentary but the a 540 where you just spin one and a half times without grabbing your board, which I can't fucking imagine how anybody does that. <laughs> uh, he did the, you know, he did it with that trick and he like beats himself to death over it. I mean, he falls so fucking hard so many times <laughs> trying to do it. And then he finally gets it and he was like, that's, and then he looks at the camera. He's like, that's the last five, Ollie 540 I'll ever do. Uh, and so knowing that that's the context of that footage and of him at this age doing it over and over again, and A, it not being mentioned that, that's what he was doing at that time yeah. and be us never seeing him landed at a, at an older age. Maybe yeah. he, maybe they wrapped the dock before he was able to do it, but at least, I don't know, some kind of acknowledgement of what was happening in that moment, especially towards the end. Once this, once you get that like really intense interview with Lance mountain talking about like skateboarding and being older and like we're probably going to die doing this and like you know for such a like funny lighthearted kind of public persona that he has that is probably the most like morbid yeah kind of tense interview Mm -hmm. of the film um so i kind of wish they would have done that serve that footage a little more service and then when they're doing the kind of animal chin reunion on that ramp where they're all back together doing the same trick yeah. video. Um, when he, when he really fucking eats it and slams yeah. super hard uh, and it's cutting to everybody that's around, like you see Lizzie Armanto and you see like my generation of skateboarders that are like, and, and by my generation, I mean, people, my age, like people that right. are probably learning to skate at the same time I was that are now signed to birdhouse and now have like shoe deals with vans and like stuff like that. Like you, that's, that's the only glimpse you really get of that generation in this film. And I think that it would have been really impactful for them to have gotten some interview time and for them to talk about him and what he meant, you know, as a, as a young up and coming skater and all of that kind of stuff, because there was a certain point in time, especially in my generation. Cause like I was seven when he landed the 900 at X game. So I didn't see that live. You know, I grew up on his games, but by 2005, 2006 in the skateboard community, Tony Hawk was kind of lame. Like he was the mainstream guy. Like he was the, the, you know, yeah. skateboarder the that incredibly successful millionaire guy. Yeah. You could buy a shirt at, um, Marshall's uh, a Tony Hawk shirt. Yeah. And, and then like, you know, 
your aunt would come to visit and she would be like, Oh, you skateboard like that Tony Hawk guy. Right. And you'd just be like, I'm a fucking street skater auntie, whatever your name is. Like, I don't fucking do that for ramp shit. Like we're, we're breaking into places. You know? like, I'm Rodney Mullen, not Tony Hawk. You old bag. Or, 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 I mean, I, I mean, really the street skating of that generation was more a, a, akin to like Dwayne Peters. Like, you know, the guys we were watching were like, blackout drunk in some of the videos that we were watching them in and they were like they were breaking into places they weren't supposed to be and getting chased out by I mean, this the whole mm-hmm. way that that robin big show on mtv started was rob deerdeck came up with this bit where he had a bodyguard to warrants or to like ward off security guards and stuff because we were places that we shouldn't be you know like um and so to see like some of them talking about how important he was. Cause I can look back on it now as like an older person and be like, yeah, even when I said I didn't like Tony Hawk, I still fucking love Tony Hawk. You know, uh, I thought would have been important. And, and the reason that I know that that's a real thing and that most people probably feel that way is because I remember when that bones brigade documentary came out, uh, threads did a screening of it, uh, at their original downtown location. And I took my brother to watch it, who was probably like, 12 or something at the time this was in two, probably 2013 he was like 12 and he really loved the documentary and so i found on ebay a copy of animal chin the bones brigade video which i had had a vhs copy of when i was his age and had lost at some point so i found it on dvd it's a 1980s skateboard video right the production quality is very 1980s camcorder and by this point in my brother's life, he's nine years younger than me. He had seen the Spike Jones girl videos that used the special effects and that fucking changed how everything operated as far as skate videos go. And he was still looking at this, you know, almost 30 year old skate video. And he was like, that was so sick. Like, even though it's kind of cheesy and corny, like those videos still hold up and they're still cool and like cinematic in their own right. And so I know that all of those people who were around had to, all those younger people have to have a lot to say about this guy, yeah. you know? Right. And, right. and that would have been like, yeah. I, a, and I think that would have made, act. that would have made for a better, you know, finishing arc to, to talk about his legacy and what, what he's done to inspire. I mean, yeah, that, that wouldn't have been a bad move. He so what you said, you had one, you've given us the three criticisms. What's the one, the commentary was about how Animal Chin still holds up and is oh, still, like, okay, such okay. a cool video. And that like, I, I mean, I was, I was, I bought that DVD for my brother because I loved it so much growing up. I thought it was so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because, because, you know, skateboard videos are typically like, here's Andrew Reynolds part, here's Dustin Dolan's part, or here's like, you know, all these different parts from different skaters. They have their own, specifically segmented like portion of time that they take up in the video animal chin is like all of them all at once like for almost the whole thing they do kind of have little separate parts here and there but for the most part it's like the search for animal chin they're like looking for this legendary mythic figure together skateboarding together and so it felt a lot more just like you and your friends hanging out and like skating ditches and like doing whatever and so I always really liked it because that when I got it for him, I was like, man, he, I, this is probably like my dad trying to show me something like from his childhood that he loved that I think sucks. And I was fully expecting my brother who had already seen all of the groundbreaking videos from the early 2000s right. 
that Spike Jones did and other people. And I was like, oh, he's probably going to think this is so lame compared to like the insane production quality that these videos have now, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he was like, that was actually really sick. Like I thought it was going to suck, but it was cool. And I was like, I told you it's badass. And like, uh, <laughs> so having had that experience, like I know that those younger people have these things to say about him right. and he probably didn't want that just because of the type of person that he seems to be. Um, but he, uh, I think that would have been the best third act yeah, or second half of a third act that you could have come up with. And, you know, but that's it. Well, there you go. Everyone and go we, watch the search for animal shit. It's so cool. That's that, that is a good recommendation. I'm sure. So I'm looking forward to trying that. I, I have to say we had, we had so much to talk about here. I went through my whole 12 ounces and I've been sitting here dry for the last like five minutes. Uh, I went through Vamanos, nine. Vamanos let's goes. That thing disappears. It really does go out of the, go out of the glass very quickly when I'm the one drinking it. It was delicious. This is, this is a, this is my summer beer, summer of 2022, baby. I think this is my beer. You think so? It's going to usurp the natter day. This is damn refreshing. Yeah. Well, sweet baby Jesus, my Duclaw chocolate peanut butter porter was delicious. 6.2 ABV. I didn't say that earlier. Just that balance that you want with peanut butter, David. We talked about it last week. It can be overwhelming. It can be cloyingly sweet. No, no, no. They, uh, they, 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 they backed off and made it just, just right. And the idea that it's a porter and not a stout always is curious because I still believe that those two styles are so similar in nature that many times it's difficult to put one uh, next to another and be able to tell them apart. I uh, bought this to do on the show someday, so I, I still have two cans of it for us. I'll bring it to an after hours in the near future when we're in the same room again, but definitely run out and get it. Patreon.com slash beer in the movie podcast, $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week. Duke, Duke Claw is two for two in my book here on the show. Very nice. Well, I don't really need to say a whole lot. Guinness fucks. Everybody knows Guinness fucks. The only way you can make a Guinness better is by dropping a shot of Jameson and Bailey's into it and chugging it. Uh, but throwing on animal chin with your buddies, right? Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, but as as much as you know as much as i love this beer i just don't buy it all that often i don't know why because every time i do buy it they're gone pretty quickly um, yeah. but you know every i don't know every four five six months or so i'll grab a four pack of it and i'll treat i'll, I'll treat myself uh and so this one i'm probably more on an annual basis probably once a year i do the guinness trip uh but i'm never never sad when i do and and it's always a great i I love those beers that you can always return to that sierra nevada pale ale that you know these beers that just they they were there for you early on and you were impressed by them then but then you return to them and they're just as good as they ever were yeah if i find if i find myself in an irish pub like an authentic irish pub and you know they're pouring Guinness Nitro, I'll grab a glass almost every single time. For sure. And you know, the, I think the interesting thing about these kinds of beers, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, as you mentioned, this one, I mean, there's a bunch more that we could point to, 
is that because they're so tried and true and battle tested and you know exactly what you're going to get from them it's all it almost kind of as the like beer nerds that we are i think in probably in a general like business sense consumer relations sense that's probably a good thing but for us that are always seeking out new things and wanting to try new things it probably actually steers us away from it a little bit because if we're trying to decide between a Guinness, which we know that we've had, we know that we've liked, and we know it's going to taste exactly the same as the last time we had it, and then something new that has, you know, fucking dollar bills and, you know, pizza, pizza yeah, yeah, yeah. your used motor oil in there, you know, whatever <laughs> crazy shit they're putting in beer these days, they're like, we're like, oh shit, man, maybe I should try that. Or like that that Martin House Ranch dressing beer that they oh have, yeah, which you know I don't a, Mex- a Mexican lager brewed with a Wyabara shirt in it. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> you know, our curious minds probably send us more to that place, and we kind of maybe overlook the tried and true stuff sometimes, which is interesting. But um, but yeah, I couldn't have been happier that you guys wanted to talk about this movie because. Like I said earlier, I had already seen it when we started talking about it. And I was like, fuck yes, sign me the fuck up for that. Uh, And just one of those things where my love of film and something else collide. And I I love to, I love, I love talking about things that I love. And I I love being able to vouch. Yeah. And I love being able to vouch for it with the uh, non skateboarding, you know, sort of dyed in the wool skateboarding audience. This works even if you're just a casual viewer and you live through the eighties and nineties, I think there's, there's going to be a lot to find there just from the era, the way things look, it's, it's a fun film. It is. Yes. Definitely check it out. If you haven't already, it's on HBO max. So there's really no excuse. God, he's uh, so young in the beginning. It's funny to watch him as a little dude, kid. It's crazy yeah. to see him. as a, I've, I've always loved those like old photos of him with like the long blonde hair, his hair changes colors inexplicably throughout the course yeah. of his life, like drastically. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but anyway, uh, we have got another documentary on the docket for the second half of the episode when we come back. Let's get it going. I'm going to crack open a beer. I'll just get it kicked up. Ooh, hey, Ramona. <laughs> Love a pup sighting. Um, so I was, I, was, I was really of two minds about the beer that I was going to have for the second half of this episode because I don't really have any good time. You have an orange crush in your hand. That's not even a it's beer. A sun, a sun kiss, actually. I'm, I'm very brand loyal. You should know this about me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, part of me was like, I'm going to be a fancy bitch and I'm going to have a pint house that we had on that last after hours that yeah. we together that cosmic nectar one but then i was like you know what beer in a movie is a podcast of the people and so what i've got here is a new offering from the voodoo ranger line from new belgium Ooh. i think it's new that's the first time i had seen it it's juice fourth ipa it's a hazy imperial ipa and one reason that i almost didn't do this beer for the second half is because it's nine and a half percent which I think I have you beat, Carlos. The offering here. You're it's you're like, not driving anywhere. I'm not, but I have stuff to do tomorrow. <laughs> um. So so I'm going in a similar direction, but even further into the stratosphere. 
my camera won't pick it up here, will it? No. Oh, it uh, oh. Laguanitas, uh, the Waldos. Uh, yeah, the Waldos, special ale. I picked up a four pack of that a couple weeks ago and I had just cracked one so far, split it with Aaron. This one I'm gonna solo right now on the second half. Remember folks, this is their triple IPA. That is 11.7%. Have we done this on the show before? I don't know if we have. I'm not a big Lagunitas guy. Let's uh, hope I live to tell the tale. I'll look that up after I tell you what I'm drinking because I think I've got a perfect pairing. Ooh. I am enjoying, I'm, I'm keeping the stout train rolling and I'm enjoying the Founders Breakfast Stout. Ooh. Double chocolate, double, a, a double chocolate coffee oatmeal stout. It's an 8.3, and if you are a beer aficionado, I know you have already had this beer before. Why is it a perfect tie-in? I'll get to that a little bit later. A little bit later. Uh, oh, <laughs> if what your tie-in your tie-in is unhinged. Uh, but yeah, look at I look at this a little bit. I mean, it's not the haze that we've come to expect from like a but it's cup, hazy but it's 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 opaque-ish yeah. i've only had one How's the nose on it is it is it juicy it, it is very juicy and i had one of these last night i was kind of excited to try it um and so i've got i've got things to say about it but uh before we get to that we got to talk about another movie and i guess since i'm the one speaking right now uh i'm going to be the one to tell you what it is and it's it's really interesting because like like the first film this also kind of takes me back to my younger years a little bit I would think it would in in a, a strange way but the documentary is called White Hot The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch came out this year uh it's an uh, it's on Netflix it's a Netflix original I suppose um directed by Allison Clayman and uh I mean, the basics and I mean, the, the, the synopsis is essentially in the title, but if you want a little something a little more uh, uh, wordy, an exploration of Abercrombie and Fitch's pop culture reign in the late 90s and early 2000s and how it thrived on exclusion is the synopsis for this, which is a pretty succinct way yeah. of describing it. Um, now, just for uh, a very brief kind of, backstory as as to my my history with this brand i don't know if you guys have you worked at the store for a couple years right i was always the guy shirtless out front that's what i was okay you were the shirtless guy all right me at five five when i was 16 (laughs) or whatever you know like uh a portly five five uh no so it's funny i remember thinking it was cool when i was in elementary school so like 2001 2002 kind of time or you know early 2000s time period and i they had a store called abercrombie just abercrombie no fitch that was right next to abercrombie and fitch that was like more like junior sizes or whatever and i finally in fifth grade was like big enough to fit into like anything ever anything abercrombie and i had like two pairs of cargo shorts from there a khaki pair and a camo pair and i thought i was the coolest fucking person of all time and then i moved away from corpus became a little skate shit punk kid then i was like fuck them and 
And around 2005 or six, when I was a little mall rat skate shit living in West Texas and a soft 9-11 truther, I had some like very. Uh, <laughs> You're revealing more on this episode. Than I, I had a very. I expected. I had a very elaborate conspiracy theory about how Abercrombie and Fitch and Hollister were a part of some like weird mind control conspiracy cult. Wow. Um, and I would just ramble on and on and on about it nonsensically to anybody that would listen at that time because I was the smartest 13 year old you'd ever met in my own estimation. I was a fucking idiot, obviously as most 13 year olds were. Um, we believe yeah. you. But there was definitely a point in my life where I thought you cannot be cool unless you wear Abercrombie and Fitch. And I was like 10, you know, uh, which is crazy. And so watching this documentary was, was, I was I was a fan of that LFO song when I was like nine or whatever. <laughs> oh man! Because um, the oh. the the guy whose house I would like hang out at when my parents like went out at night, uh, he uh, he was like an older kid that was like good at basketball, and I wanted to be good at basketball. I thought he was cool. He was the first person that let me listen to Eminem, you know. But he liked that song, and I was like, oh, he likes that song. That means the song is cool. <laughs> So it was, it That's was how it works. It's the transitive property of coolness. If, if yeah, this was, person like this cool thing. Yeah. It's gotta be cool. It was, I, it was, it was a time of questionable taste for me though, is the, it's, uh, the moral of that, that. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You encountered it at a different time than I did. Like Abercrombie rose just at the tail end of my teenage years. And it, it was something that I was already inclined to reject and so I remember it. I remember it cropping up at the malls around me. I remember the experience of walking past it and thinking like, this does nothing to attract, <laughs> does nothing to make me want to go to this place. But understanding that it became a huge phenomenon and seeing all those shirts with the logo or, you know, the, the brand on them constantly and everywhere in the late 90s. It, and so it was fascinating from that standpoint, just in terms of a topic where I'm like, oh yeah, that was a weird moment where this clothing brand, and there's others that we could point to that I guess could get similar treatment. And I feel like probably there's similar stories to tell there with something like, you know, maybe the Gap or or, or something else. Although the Gap had more longevity to it, I feel like. Than- well, it, it, it was a it was a brand that's been around for much longer than I even knew. Sure. Late 1800s. They kind of gloss over that too. That, that would almost be an interesting separate documentary. What was historically this almost like a a tantamount to an, tantamount to an LL bean outdoors store. And then they, as the, as urbanization, you know, kind of dismisses outdoorsmanship they shifted and became part of the limited brand, like the 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 umbrella that's on Victoria's Secret. Yeah. yeah, Victoria's Secret Limited, what you see in every single mall in America. And so when Carlos says, I was so cool when I wore my Abercrombie and Fitch, that's exactly what they were going for yeah. uh, under the guidelines of CEO Mike Jeffries, who we get to know a little bit by watching the documentary. <laughs> Yeah, who's a strange Does guy. not participate in it. No. <laughs> and I mean, who thought he was going to? <laughs> no, know? nobody. But I'm just saying, like, you don't <laughs> you don't see any footage of Mike Jeffries as he is now. You see these 
lots of still images of him from when he was running the company during that period, which ended around 2002, I guess. I think anyway, early 2000s, I think he exited. And well, the class action lawsuit was 2003. Okay, right. So he was the CEO until 2014. Oh, 2014. Okay. Well, yeah. there you go. Well, you, you have pictures from that era, but nothing contemporary, nothing since he was running the company. And yeah, he's, he's, he's an interesting character and more, more problematic is his, uh, you know, main photographer, uh, was it Weber? Yeah. Steve, not Steve Weber. That was a guy from wings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's, he's an okay guy. Let's not bad mouth him. Um, I'll find it. Go, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was just, I was going to say Abercrombie and Fitch wins by marketing. And if you remember that era and I do, and like you, Dave, I'm a little bit older than you. I was into business, casual corporate work at the time that they were rising. This was nothing that I was interested in, but like you, I went to the mall. I walked into the store as they described the stores and how popular they were, I completely was taken back to it. But the marketing of Abercrombie and Fitch was largely handsome, built, white, shirtless guys uh, selling shirts. shirts to shirtless guys. That is yeah, selling shirts to selling shirts. But you would see these, you know, storefront, yeah. huge billboard size in front of the stores. A bunch of guys throwing a football around, no shirts on. One of them is more muscular than the next. Just guys being guys. Just, just like the three of us before we get done after we're done taping, usually. <laughs> yeah. uh, when we take our shirts off and throw a football around. <laughs> right before after hours, that's what we do every time. Right when Kylie goes, I'm going to go to bed, Ugh, you know, and leaves. Uh, yeah, I'm out of This is disgusting. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, from a consumer standpoint, it's like, well, if it's working, because clearly it is. You see the Abercrombie and Fitch logo on all kinds of young people all of the time at the time. And so what this documentary does is expose a series of um, gaffes, of problems, of saying that, it's not just the marketing, but it's the entire corporate culture that hot, attractive is more important than anything right. from the pilots of the, of the private jet to the employees. And, you know, that could be troublesome when people who, quote unquote, aren't, quote unquote, hot, don't get the job and begin asking questions or or get fired from the job after having already been employed there you know like mm -hmm. the way that they would kind of not even fire people but just mm, we're just not going to put them on the schedule until eventually they decide to go away. and of course the sheer whiteness of it all right? that turned and, out to be problematic yeah and so the, and so that's the that's really where this documentary comes to a head is that they uh, whatever their marketing principles or their business strategy or whatever is concerned is one thing, but the fact that it came down so intensely to where that marketing became a part of who they employed and who like they wanted to be seen in the stores and stuff like that. And so when you get to the point where like people are being fired, like pretty overtly because they're too Brown or mm -hmm. they're not attractive enough when 
you know, your employment policies are starting to revolve around that, then that's certainly an issue. And, you know, a part of the documentary that I found interesting was after that class action lawsuit, they bring in like a guy who's like the head of diversity or whatever, <laughs> uh, uh, poor guy, you know, I feel um, bad for him. Yeah. But, you know, on paper, he did do some things to diversify the company, uh, more so at the store level than in like the corporate structure of it. Like the boardrooms mm-hmm. are still very white, you know, the directors of this and that are still very white, but what the documentary focuses on at that point is how, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch is specifically trying to market to the cool kids or to who they perceive to be the cool kids or their marketing is very specifically exclusionary mm-hmm. and things like that. And the thing that I find interesting about that is that's a huge part of fashion, period. Like all fashion marketing is down to scarcity to a certain degree. Like I haven't bought a single pair of shoes this year because they're intentionally not making enough pairs of the sneakers I want to buy that I can buy them. Like just full stop. That's what it is, is they are intentionally making it hard for me to get them because I don't have to connect because I don't know the right people. I don't have a plug. I'm not willing to pay twice the retail value on the secondhand market. You look at all the luxury fashion houses, Gucci, Versace, Louis Vuitton, like Prada, Dior, all of those fashion houses engage in intentional exclusionary marketing, but theirs isn't about who's cool and who's not. It's about who has the money to buy their product. Well, and also, you know, the difference here is I think Abercrombie and Fitch was certainly trying to use that veneer of exclusivity to be the brand, to, to, to sort of symbolize the brand. But in reality, it was you know, $20 t-shirts, it was accessible clothing for a middle income market. How exclusive can it maintain? Like eventually that exclusivity crumbles in the face of the fact that it became so ubiquitous, right? Everybody had the Abercrombie and Fitch stuff. It no longer seems quite as unattainable. Couple that with the way they're trying to be exclusive is so exclusive. It includes race. It it, It has those kind of problems baked into it. It was, Ca- casually yeah. offensive graphic tease toward oh, the yeah. Asian. Yeah, that I mean, that's I mean, look, don't get me wrong. They're the large majority of what they did is terrible. Like, yeah, yeah. almost everything they did was terrible. Right, but but I, I get what you're saying. But, like, but, they I mean, aren't I, so unique. They, no, they're not. And really, the fundamental difference in how they're excluding people is that, you know. Mike Jeffries had an idea of like, if we market this brand this particular way, it's going to make this particular person want to wear this brand. And if these other people that we don't care about as much as our target demographic don't want to buy the brand, that's fine because we don't care about them. Other, and you know, the way that they decided who they wanted to wear their brand and who they didn't is obviously very problematic. But the idea, but is it any more problematic that like an entire business structure revolves around we don't want poor people to wear our clothes? Like, right. You know, right. like, no, I mean, I, I think I, I think it's more acceptable because it's been done for so long and it's been such a big part of the way that fashion has worked that people are kind of more willing to not see it as like really an issue. 
but it's the same tactic. It's the same line of thinking. It just revolves around socioeconomic factors rather than around, you know, race, sexual or- orientation, any of any personal uh, personal identity politics. Yeah, which I, you know, which I found interesting. Again, fuck Abercrombie and Fitch. Full stop. I mean, I I don't I don't want it to seem like. I mean, they made fucking ugly clothes. Their stores were atrocious and fucking terrible to be in. And Mike Jeffries is a big fucking creep. Uh, well, it's so interesting it's bummer, because, but, you know, you stick. I don't go to the mall. I avoid the mall. But with a teenage daughter, I find myself at the mall from time to time. So I'm walking by. and I see this new store called Hollister. It turned this was a couple years ago. It turns out that they're owned by the same parent company. It's 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 the same shit with a, a, a seagull logo instead of the A and F logo. Instead, um, of, instead of the moose. There you go. And um, it, you walk into those stores and you walk into an Abercrombie and Fitch, and it seems like that they are like almost destined to eventually fail because unless you do some kind of innovation it's difficult to sell the same brand Victoria's secret bed, bath and not bed, bath, you know, bed, bath and body works. Um, these are just mall stores that I know, but they've been around for a real long time. And that's because the women in my life say that they deliver a quality product. Um, but even Victoria's secret, I think has suffered quite a bit in recent years in terms of sales. Yeah. They, they, I, they kind of ended up losing. I, I don't know. I mean, all bath of the body works is tight though. Fashion is so cyclical. Fashion is so up and down. Fashion is so what's in now is almost designed to be out in a couple of years because we just don't want to. Well, hold yeah, on. no, that's how fashion works. Oh, we definitely have cycles. And I hear what you're so, saying, Joe. When you're building your brand on a certain look, a certain image, a certain quality, then it's going to go out of fashion. It's it's hard. Sure. To, yeah. See, the rise portion of this documentary was so much less interesting to me than the fall version of the documentary because the fall version, a class action lawsuit by a, a dozen or so employees that did not fit the white, physically fit model right. of employment. And that was the overt reason why they were no, not hired. The Supreme Court case. Uh, with S- Samantha Elauf, who was rejected by Abercrombie because she wore a head, uh, headscarf. Yeah. Scarf that went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2015. The uh, problematic notion that the photographer was alleged Bruce Weber was the name. I, yeah, I Bruce know. Weber. Yeah, uh, Bruce. <laughs> make, yeah, uh, uh, to have. Um, you know, acted inappropriately with all the sexy male models. Uh, That to me was a lot more interesting because it's indicative of, I think, kind of this society that we live in now where the consumer's looking for, you know, the big corporate brands to make mistakes. And and we as the consumers oftentimes are the people that are going to point those mistakes out the loudest Mm -hmm. and the quickest and if it gets on social media, man, you got yourself a problem pretty quick. If you're a yeah. uh, a brand that is doing things that you know a majority of folks believe are inappropriate, well, that was fascinating to me because mm-hmm. it, it, it's here now still. Right. 
I, I had actually, um, you know, the guy behind the limited brands, Les Waxman, is that his name? Uh, Baxter. You know, huh? I was making a Exotica joke. Oh. It was Les Baxter. <laughs> Very niche comedy. <laughs> uh, well, anyhow, the, the, you know, he he also, like I said, had Victoria's Secret. I There was a, a pretty interesting podcast series, like investigative journalism series on Victoria's Secret, like kind of the rise and fall of the brand which he was very much more at the center of, right? Rather than hiring a Mike Jeffries to do it, he was, you know, kind of behind the the, the sculpting of that brand in, in, in a way. But he's like, I, his nickname is like the king of the mall or the wizard yeah. of the mall or something like that. That, you know, he had all these very successful mall stores and was very good at building these very iconic brands. But it's just amazing how much that industry attracts these people who want to abuse their power. You know, like he was best friends with Epstein. That was the most compelling thing of that podcast series for me. That doesn't come into this almost at all. I mean, I think it does it get mentioned. mentioned. Briefly, it gets mentioned. But, the, you know, that's a pretty weird relationship. And Epstein used the Victoria's Secret connection in part to help him with his recruitment of women and, you know, his, con his, his connections to women. But... But this alone, you know, that then you got this guy, Mike Jeffries, who it's unclear what what maybe he was doing, although it seems <laughs> it seems likely that he was abusing his power in some ways. But very clearly, Bruce Weber, who he was friends with and who worked with constantly and really helped define the brand visually for them, was doing some pretty ridiculously bad stuff with the manipulative, uh, you know, sort of harassment and abuse. Yeah. Well, the documentary says that. Um the nail in Mike Jeffrey's coffin was that he was still commanding a $40 million sal a yearly salary yeah. when the brand was just not making any money at all. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, whenever you're CEOs do, sorry, that's classic CEO, like CEOs yeah. do that shit. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the reason why, I mean, I don't know if this is a rabbit hole you guys want to entertain. I chose a founders brewing Back in episode 74, the, the, the most intoxicating we've intoxicated we've ever been on this show. Our special guest was Harold Ramos. We need to do oh, that yeah. again. We drank seven beers in that episode, and they were all heavy hitters. And um, he mentioned, or someone mentioned, a founder's beer. And uh, at the time, uh, this was at the tail end of the founder's brewing controversy, where it kind of was exhibited that the power, some, some of, not all the powers that be, had a very kind of racist um, policies and attitudes. There was a very, a very racist culture within. Yeah. On the heels of the George Floyd situation. I mean, like it was just a bad time for racists, you know? I, think I mean, was, I think it was before George Floyd. It was before, but yeah. Was it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. And there was a huge backlash against Founders. I'm never drinking Founders again. Someone mentioned Founders on that episode, and I believe it was me that said, oh, uh, are we drinking Founders again? Because I'm not drinking Founders. And it was Harold that made a good point. And that is, if there are bad apples in a corporate society and you remove them and you work diligently to correct your mistakes, how, off, how long do we punish you? You know? Now, well, I think well, his point was that like good people are there too. That, that the brewers, there, the people are actually right. yeah, yeah, the, right. the brewers are just there trying to make the best beer that they can. You know, like that's right. But if we're gonna make steps to correcting issues that we know that we have, 
then how, you know, how long are we going to keep people in the doghouse? Now, the thing about um, Abercrombie and Fitch is that. Are you they, trying to get Mike Jeffries out of the doghouse? No, Bruce Weber. No, 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 no. Yeah, I was you're not to, trying I was to, about to say. Joe, don't make this into an, an apologist uh, no, no, no. for Bruce Weber. Let me finish my thoughts. The <laughs> list of issues at Abercrombie and Fitch was so long and so egregious. And then you add to it that cyclical notion of fashion. I'm surprised that there's a store open and I wouldn't be sad if there was. Oh. But Harold spoke some sense to me that day that cancel culture can go a little too far if there isn't room in a corporate or even you know personal place for mistakes to be made, lessons to be learned, and then corrections to be well, made. But with Abercrombie and Fitch, it doesn't seem like that the powers that be really ever tried to do that. No. Yeah. I mean, outside of the of, of the hiring of a diversity agent, a diversity right. guy. Well, they're new. I mean, it, it does seem like they're trying to enter a new phase, but but it's really tough, and and you really have to think like it's one thing when you have at the base like a, a pretty you know it, we're we're going with founders here. Um, you have a good slate of beers that they've put out over the years that has endeared them to the craft beer community. Um, because they have a superior product or, sure. or generally have had a superior product. Abercrombie is something that once you're past that wave of the style, that what it embodied, what, what it sort of signified to people culturally, once you're beyond that, it's just your run-of-the-mill t-shirts and cargo shorts. There's sure. nothing special. There, like, th there was nothing innovative or thought-provoking or avant-garde about what they were doing. Nope. It was just, I mean, you could have gotten pretty much the same stuff at Gap with just a slightly, you know, not the Abercrombie name on it. Yeah. And, I mean, we don't have one here anymore. Like, we had... That's right. You know... Like I said, when I was in, in elementary school, I like wanted to go there. I'd walk by it in the mall all the time. And then when I was in middle school and had my crazy conspiracy theories about them, uh, it was because I was like a mall rat. Like that's what we did in Midland is we went to the fucking mall on the weekends because we didn't have anything else to do. There was nothing to do there. And there was one there. Now, you know, Joe had mentioned something about a couple of years ago going to Hollister for the first time. It's because we have a Hollister now, but we don't have an Abercrombie and Fitch anymore. <laughs> uh, we didn't have a Hollister for the longest time. And like now I think the closest one to us is in San Antonio. I just Googled it real quick. And there's mm. two in San Antonio and one in Houston, but there used to be one here. I'm sure there was one in the Valley. I mean, like yeah. there, they yeah. used to be there. The chain has got to be significantly smaller than it once was. They're down to like 800 and something stores now, where I'm sure at one point they were probably at thousands, right? Like they had to have been at a certain point in time. Uh, but well, before we lose sight of it, because I think the topic alone is interesting. And I think if, if you get it all interested in the idea of branding and fashion and you know trend and then some of the nefarious stuff that can be aligned with that i mean there, there's some compelling stuff there from a formal standpoint from the way this is put together i was actually a little bit irritated by this documentary i found the i i mean in terms of the graphics i i found those graphics kind of annoying the way that they were like over stylized it was just it felt very like forced and gimmicky to me which was sad because i think it was compelling enough material as it was um what graphics? but it, 
felt like it wanted to like juice things up. You don't remember it? Mm-mm. The, trans- uh, the go, go back and just watch five minutes of it, and you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I don't know what this says about this as a film or what uh-huh. it means for its merits as like a documentary film, but I remember almost nothing about this movie visually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably your brain doing you a kindness. Maybe I I clearly remember the story well because we've just spoken about it in in great length. But from a visual perspective, from an editing perspective, the soundtrack was not good. I mean, it was forgettable. Um, none of those things. Really it was nineties. It was very nineties. There was definitely some some on the nose nineties stuff, which I thought was okay, but especially given the subject, but yeah. Well, for sure. And I thought that too. I mean, there were a couple of times where I was just like, Oh, all this makes sense. But again, like nothing that I remember, like when we go back to the Tony Hawk documentary, I remember the buzzcocks. I remember Devo. I remember the clash. I remember, you know, that's that's your wheelhouse. That's I remember like all of these uh, songs, which we didn't mention it. But the use of "Why Can't I Touch It" by the Buzzcocks—he's oh, like trying good. to land a 900—was incredible. Super on the nose, totally worked for me. Loved it. Um, but from a from so a yeah, narrative, I don't I don't remember the graphics. From a narrative, I do, uh, David. I know exactly what you mean. They were annoying. It it it's it's a gimmick used sometimes to better success. There's a documentary about corn in the American Diet Society called King. Corn. <laughs> I was so hoping you were going to talk about <laughs> leash, the the tour doc or something. I'm like, Joe, please be a closet corn fan. I thought I'm for sure he meant the band corn. <laughs> no, no, but I am trying to get together a corn Smash Mouth uh, tribute. <laughs> No, no, I'm King Corn. The the idea that we as a society in America eat too much corn, it has changed our right. biomass and it's not supposed to. Anyway, um, they use graphics like that in a much more interesting way. Um, this movie's a hard pass for me, although Ooh. I think the, the conversation that we were having about some of the things in cultural corporate society, it's worth you Googling what was the deal with Abercrombie and Fitch and reading like the laundry list of mistakes that they made as a corporate culture. But the movie itself, it, it, Carlos, as much as you enjoyed and, and the three of us enjoyed the Tony Hawk, as, mu- as close as you were to that skating culture, I am so absent from Abercrombie and Fitch culture that this just doesn't interest me at all. Uh, The idea of mall fashion, I don't care. Um, Although, and I believe that the societal kind of justice portion of it, which could have been interesting, wasn't handled in an interesting way. So it's almost like a huge missed opportunity. I guess Mike Jeffries is an interesting character to kind of point and laugh at to a degree. But otherwise, you know, if there's any terrible taste of failure, it's that this documentary is probably more than anything a missed opportunity. Okay, so my my question is, you weren't an 80s mall kid? Yeah, I I was an 80s mall kid. But they Um, weren't around by then. Abercrombie wasn't there yet. I could tell you all the stores in the 80s. Of course, dude, of course. Yes. I I mean, I, I know that Abercrombie and Fitch wasn't like a a big presence at that time, but just because you said that 
the idea of this subject matter and you use the word small fashion didn't interest you. I would imagine that even if it wasn't of this time period that you at least had some kind of connection to growing up, going to malls, being influenced by what was in the malls. And but that's not, that wasn't a big, big part of it. It, it was, it was, I don't think, cause it was highlighting just this one store. My favorite mall store was a local store. Uh, uh, Benjamin's, which has been around for a long, long, long time. Yeah, which unfortunately um, we don't really have local. The, yeah, I think more, but I think the seventies going into the eighties, there was a little bit more of an independent retail yeah. culture in a lot of malls. It, it was that way when I was yeah. at the tail end of, or I'm sorry, I should say, at the beginning of my mall experience. I feel like that was more of a. We also had like a few independent record store, right? that were there we also had a couple chain record stores that, that we just I had think chains we, when i was growing up yeah, yeah. so it was, it was like the idea the idea of wearing a shirt like an abercrombie and fitch shirt like a because the those words are on it which makes me cooler at school i i i am i was never no it's i don't want to say i don't want to say it was I never but and I, I, and I witnessed it but i was like i said i was a little already in the punk camp by the time that, that was really becoming a thing. And so it never appealed to me. In fact, it was something that I felt like I wanted. I was one of the kids who was influenced by Mike Watt and others talking about going to thrift stores, Salvation Army and picking up cheap flannel shirts. And, you know, that was my idea of fashion in the early 90s, influenced by grunge. You yeah. Know? yeah, especially in the early 90s. But Joe, that, that, that wasn't a thing for you at Ray? Is that where you no, were? I, no, I know. I went to Carol, and, Carol. I, and, and I, I'm an only child. And my mom wanted to give me everything she didn't have as a very poor person growing Ralph up. Lauren. So I I had all of Hello. the brands, and you're not going to even recognize the brands that I'm about to. List. I hope you had Z Cavaricci. No, no, no. <laughs> I had Genera jeans. Uh, I'm sorry, Genera, um, Bongo. Um, uh, Jerbo jeans. Those were the ones they perfectly pinch rolled when you had your Converse high tops flipped down. I, I did all that shit, but I outgrew it. And then came, but, the but, but my point is though, go that, ahead. that like, you can understand that, yeah, sure. you know, when you were going to school, people that had the certain shit were I do, but I also I mean, understand the one girl's point of view when she said, oh, my God, Aber Abercrombie and Fitch has perfectly created a store that has everything I hate about being a teenager. <laughs> no, for sure. And I, by the time I got to be a teenager, I definitely felt the same way. But yeah, no, but know. aspirationally, when you were in that preteen phase where you were starting to look ahead, it felt very alluring. Yeah, and then up into high school, it was all polo. Polo. I mean, so so when they say that Abercrombie and Fitch was a blend of polo, Ralph Lauren, and they the, another brand I can't remember. Do you remember? No, but you know, I know the the, 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 the preppy look. And the other fascinating that was a fascinating thing was how they would open a store at a new mall in town and then go to the local college and find the hunky uh, frat guys, give them a bunch of free clothing, and that would create the the culture in that town for Abercrombie and Fitch that was kind of interesting like guerrilla marketing that I, I I was interested in but otherwise I mean, I mean that's just I mean that's just good marketing let's be real I mean people sure, sure. Shit. if the cool people buy if the cool people buy it and wear it then we can get everybody else to buy it and wear it that's age old 
yeah. but that they were so purposeful about it, which I thought was really fascinating. But otherwise, yeah, I, I, I felt like this um, documentary is certainly the lesser of the two with our Tony Hawk documentary being a very distant first place tonight. Yeah. Um, you know, strangely, I think that this documentary is the ideal way to consume this information for me personally, because I don't feel like, I give a shit about it enough to write <laughs> to, to to read it to like yeah. read all of to if like if there was an essay version of this documentary I'm not gonna like it takes more effort for me to read something than it is to just like have something on yeah. and like because I was watching this for the podcast I wasn't like doing other shit at the time like Kylie and I sat down and we watched it and at the end of it both of us were just like oh damn that's crazy like I didn't realize that these issues went on for as long as they did and that they went as like they ran as deep as they did like we all knew that Abercrombie and Fitch was kind of fucked up but like the fact that it was still an issue when I was like in college is crazy you know um but I think that while it's not like a great example of documentary filmmaking necessarily I think that if it is like a subject that interests you, if you are my age and grew up lurking in malls and like, like for me, like when I was a mall rat kid, like we strayed away from there. Like we looked in there and we kind of laughed at how dark it was and how bad the music was and like how bad it smelled and stuff like that. And then we went to hot topic, you know, like, uh, but you know, even if you experienced any of it, whether it was like, you were a consumer that went there and like a customer of there, a patron or someone like me that like kind of avoided it um, in your teen years as you started like, you know, developing who you were. Um, I think that, I think that this is the easiest way to like consume that information. And it's something that, again, this is more of a teardown of it as a film than it is. Uh, but it is a recommendation to watch. You can watch it while you're folding laundry or like while you have, <laughs> while you're cooking or something else. Like while you're folding shirts to put on display, you know? Yeah, yeah. While you're working at Abercrombie & Fitch, you can have this on in the stock room. Uh, yeah, it, and... it's 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 fairly simple. No, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, so it's if, this, if, this been about, if this had been about my favorite store at the mall, Buckle, I probably would have had a more interesting... <laughs> I mean, look... I, I think after hours should be a rehashing of our mall experiences because I'm maybe, ready. Maybe. the mall was a big deal for me. A big oh, no, dude, it was a huge deal when yeah. you guys save it, save it, save it, save it, save it, save it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the movie theater, when the, when our current mall re when our best mall reopened or redid itself with a movie theater, we were there every Friday, every Saturday doing the mall thing. Yeah, you're right. We'll talk about that in after hours. That's a great I can, idea. I can definitely talk about movie theaters as a as a young lad as well. Uh, but yeah. David, I feel like you're about to launch into a soliloquy about Waldo's special ale. And that's that's pretty much what was going to happen there. Uh, what, what, what I was trying to do was saying, I think we've given too much time to this doc. I'm, I'm <laughs> agree. I, I mean... I, like I said, I think topics worthwhile and everything. I don't think it's a the best version of this documentary that that I would have wanted to have seen. But I applaud it for being made, uh, and and I definitely need to see more of uh, Allison Clayman's work because I know there's a couple other docs in her past that uh, the Ai Weiwei one gets 
high ratings and uh, as does uh, she did one on Alanis Morissette last year, I think about Jagged Little Pill that I need to watch that's uh, I think on HBO so um, this beer. I can't believe I just drank 12 ounces of it as quickly as I did. It is 11.7%. It is Waldo's special ale. It is you drank it pretty fast, my guy. I did. I saw and I saw some of the swigs you were taking. Yeah, it it's so good. It is the <laughs> dankest of dank. It but but without being overly sweet, it does not turn into that like malt bomb mess that even a double IPA. This is a triple IPA that keeps it all in check. There's a reason why this is sought after. There's a reason why people get excited about whenever this drops, because it only comes once a year. I'm glad I got my four pack this year, guys. I'm glad that I got to drink one. I did not get my four pack of it this year. I didn't even realize it had come out to, to be quite honest, but the reason that I wanted to do the juice force for my beer for this segment was because I think it's a really strong, juicy, hazy IPA that you can just get at the supermarket whenever. And there have, I mean, like the Juicy Haze uh, IPA was like the first New Belgian, New Belgian Brewing Company's first foray into the hazy IPA. And I thought that was pretty strong when you could get it fresh. But this one, it really is, I just took a sip of it to kind of refresh my sensory memory, but it really is very juicy. I mean, it doesn't have that like pillowy, super full body kind of mouthfeel that you get from like the really, really, really exceptional hazy IPAs, the New England IPAs. It has a more just kind of standard ale kind of mouthfeel to it, but it has a ton of uh like stone I mean, it's like there's a lot of peach uh in there and a nice kind of like underpinning of like citrus slightest hint of melon maybe but there's a lot of like juicy fruity flavors coming through and it is a incredibly drinkable 9.5 percent which is dangerous um but i think it was like 9.99 when i bought it uh, i wasn't I, I was at Target. I was not there for beer really or anything of the sort, but I was, it was on an end cap and I saw it and I was, it was either 9.99 or 10.99 for a six pack for a 9.5% beer. And if it even remotely delivered on what it was advertising, I'd say that's a great deal. Uh, and it definitely, it, it definitely did deliver. So I think that if you see it at the grocery store, don't hesitate to just stock a sixer of it in your fridge. Cause I don't think you'll be disappointed. I'm going to take your advice. I'm going to take your advice, Carlos. I brought the breakfast out from Founders tonight because of that odd tie-in. The other reason why I have it in my refrigerator is because at my grocery store across the bridge, smaller town, it is sometimes the only stout available to purchase. Interesting. I thought so too. I'm going to have to get with that. No Guinness. manager of our grocery chain and, and shake him around a little bit. But the reason why this thing is, has been around for as long as it has, why it's as popular as it was, and I, you know, hope that it regains that popularity is because they just, they know exactly what they're doing with this breakfast stout. It is so heavily malted 
that it gives you such an interesting experience. The chocolate's there, the coffee's there, the oatmeal, you know, doesn't come across as a flavor, but it certainly comes across in the mouthfeel. So yeah, breakfast out, drinking, having a brunch, 10, 30, 11, even up into noon, this might be the beer that goes with it um, if I have it in the refrigerator. And since it's the only stout available sometimes when I'm shopping, chances are I might. Uh, I, I, I'm glad that I revisited this Founders and um, I, I'm going to forgive them for their past sins and appreciate them for changing and making themselves a better company. Yeah, they've, they've definitely always made some solid beer. Yeah. Got to give them that. Gotta Backwards them. Bastard, the, I mean, the, the Centennial IPA. I mean, I mean, a, a laundry list of solid, of solid sure. over the years. Uh, I actually, you know, one from them that I used to really like and I used to get almost every time I went to Alamo was the Rubeus on Nitro. Uh, it was like, is a, that a raspberry? Yeah, it was like a raspberry that they had on Nitro and it was delicious, very creamy, mm-hmm. uh, not. I mean, it was pretty sweet, but not overly sweet. But anyway, the life that got the life that got in your way last week, Carlos, prevented you from watching the films, which means that I know that you haven't. You said you weren't going to listen to last week's episode until you caught up with the Northmen and Unbearable Weight uh, that we dis- that we discussed last week. Yeah, but one of the one of the things we discussed in after hours last week was the problem with the lines over at Alamo Draft House, which almost every single person at our meetup uh, noted. Interesting. I want to hear more about that uh, here in a second. Um, you got it. When we get to the after hour. Speaking of which, the best part about Beer in a Movie is that the conversation doesn't end when the show ends. It continues on all of your favorite social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer in a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer in a Movie TX. Beer in a Movie Podcast.com truly is now, I can say, our home base because it has links for all sorts of stuff. You can find our Patreon there, patreon.com slash beer and movie podcast, $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week. You can also find our discord channel there where we're talking about all sorts of stuff, not just beer and movies, uh, all sorts of craziness going on over there. You can also find a link to our merch store, tpublic.com slash user slash beer and a movie, or just click the merch button on the website. You can get shirts, hoodies, crew necks, uh, mugs, stickers, all sorts of stuff over there uh, with these incredible designs by my buddy Jake uh, Sazone um, at JT Sazone on Instagram. Uh, incredible stuff, very comfortable Bella canvas tee as I love wearing mine and truthfully need to get another one in a different color, I think, uh, for myself. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps the algorithm do what it do and to put the uh, show in front of more eyes and ears, et cetera. Um, and don't forget on the website as well, you can find these really great collections of episodes that Joe's curated uh, that are focused on either themes or directors like our All Horror October episodes, our uh, – Richard Linkletter focused episodes. We just recently covered him. Um, John Carpenter, all of the directors that we've kind of like put a spotlight on and really focused on talking about their filmographies or certain selections from their filmographies. So there's whatever your vice, whatever tickles your fancy, you can find an episode for it on beerandmoviepodcast.com. And um, really excited to get into the after hours because I did miss a week and I know we have a lot to discuss. Um, but that wraps it up for this week. It's been, um, another adrenaline fueled, slightly racist episode of beer. And a movie. 
I'm just kidding. A not at all racist episode of Beer in a Movie. Uh, until next time. You know, there's going to be a cost to this, and some are going to pay more. Thank you.